Hello and welcome to this uh, episode of Exit Pursued by the Bard. Um, I think we could call this episode The Bard Pursued by the Plague because that's what we're going to talk about. Um, my name's John Moss and I'm uh, a relative newcomer to the Canterbury Shakespeare Festival. Um, I'm down to be directing Sir Thomas More, which will now be in 2022, which I'm very excited about. And I'm also uh, very excited to be joined by um, three new friends from the festival for this discussion. Um, what we're going to be talking about is the fact that we all know that Shakespeare's life and career were both affected by the plague. Um, but we want to probe into that a bit and think about uh, how we think that affects the plays themselves. And indeed, uh, in our current circumstances, whether our experience of the pandemic has changed in any way how we think about Shakespeare and the plague, or indeed about the plays uh, more generally. So I'm very pleased to be, uh, to be joined, as I said, by three people, and I'll just ask them now uh, in turn to uh, introduce themselves to you. So, Charlotte. Uh, hello to anyone watching or listening. Um, to anyone familiar with the festival, you may recognise me as uh, Charlotte Groombridge, who is the managing director, um, as well as acting in some plays, as well as directing in some others. Uh, pass it over to Kieran. <clears throat> Sorry, I just had to clear my throat. Hello. Uh, <laughs> you can cut that. I'm Kieran. Um, I have been working with CSF for many years now in a writing and, and, and acting capacity. Um, I do some other things on the side also, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. This is my second time on the series. Um, yeah, that's me. And over to Sarah. Okay, well, I'm Sarah Lockyer and uh, I've been associated with the festival for a couple of years now, um, acting, and I'm looking forward to directing in 2022 as well. Uh, I'll be directing Henry IV Part One. Can't wait to do that. Um, and uh, yes, I've been involved in some of the online things that have been going on with CSF uh, during lockdown and COVID. So delighted to be here and part of this panel. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, friends. And um, I thought I'd just kick off um, for the benefit of um, people who, um, for whom Shakespeare may be uh, relatively new with, with a, a few of the things that we know or have been suggested are possible about how uh, the plague actually affected Shakespeare and his life. So I mean, the first fact that we know is that uh, the plague hit Stratford, where Shakespeare was born, only 11 weeks after his birth. And uh, about 200 people died in that outbreak, which was, was a considerable number for a relatively small town. Um, in his own family, at least two of his siblings died of the plague in infancy. Um, there's a theory also that Shakespeare's theatrical career may have begun because of the plague, uh, because we all wonder how he got to London. And uh, one theory is that a troupe of visiting players uh, came to Stratford 
when it was impossible to perform in London because of the plague and that he may have joined a traveling group and, and got back to London with them, um, having been excited by theater through it coming to where he lived. Uh, of course, when he did get there, the theaters in London were very frequently closed. Um, the practice in London tended to be that the theatres got shut at any time when there were more than 30 deaths recorded from the plague in a given week. So you can see something that was operating there a bit like the uh, R number that we've experienced or the, the numbers in hospital or the number of deaths sadly um, in the last year or so. Uh, and that meant that uh, there were major closures of the theatres for uh, periods as long as nearly three years in 1592 to four. Uh, a really bad outbreak in 1603 when 30,000 people out of 200,000 in London um, died. And again, other outbreaks in 1606, 1608 to nine. And I, I've seen one um, critic has argued that actually the total time the theatres were open during Shakespeare's time in London was not much more than about 78 months, uh, which makes his productivity seem uh, even more remarkable, I think. And the plague is certainly there in his writing, um, but I think one of the things that feels puddling, puzzling in view of the extent of its influence is that um, he doesn't appear to have written a play specifically dealing with it. Um, there are references to it in, in many places. Those go back as early as uh, one of his long poems, Venus and Adonis, that he wrote during that first outbreak that I mentioned, in which Venus says that the power of Adonis's kiss could drive away the plague the plague, she says, is banished by thy breath. Um, and this, this runs on. Probably the most famous quotation of all about the plague in the whole of Shakespeare is Mercutio's line that um, he speaks after uh, he's been um, fatally injured in, in the famous duel, which is to curse uh, the Capulet and Montague houses with the line, a plague on both your houses. And if you follow uh, Romeo and Juliet through to the end, you see that in some ways that curse could actually be said to be fulfilled because um, the practical reason why things end as tragically as they do is because the friar, Friar John, is unable to deliver the message which might have brought about a happier ending because he gets locked in uh, in a plague house. He says, explaining why he hasn't been able to deliver the message, the searchers of the town suspecting that we both were in a house where the infectious pestilence did reign, scaled, sorry, sealed up the doors and would not let us forth. So it's very specific reference to the plague that Mercutio had called down that has a, a really significant uh, influence on the final outcome. And there are, there are odd lines like that scattered through 
many of the plays, um, including, um, for example, in Timon of Athens, Timon uh, asking Alcibiades to uh, make sure that um, he acts in, in an extremely ruthless manner, says to him, be as a planetary plague. When Jove will err some high vice city, hang his poison in the sick air, let not thy sword skip one. So be as ruthless and relentless in the plague uh, in killing um, the people who um, time wants to see killed. So there are lines like that all over the place, but none of those um, amounts to a kind of systematic presence um, that is particularly obvious. But, but what my friends have been doing is thinking about um, whether you can find something more um, coherent or systematic that in some way relates to the play in particular plays that they're uh, interested in. And, and we're now going to um, talk about those plays uh, in turn uh, in a bit more depth. And uh, Charlotte is going to start off by talking to us a bit about King Lear. So thank you, Charlotte. Oh, thank you, John. Uh, so I chose King Lear initially uh, because that was the big thing that was going round at the beginning of the first lockdown was when Shakespeare was in, in quarantine, uh, he wrote King Lear. Um, and it, it's un we're unsure whether that is true or not. Uh, he certainly did write some plays uh, in during plague. I mean... There were several lockdowns uh, in Shakespeare's time. Uh, it's likely that maybe he did write some of it or write a fair bit of it, but there's nothing to suggest that he definitely did or definitely didn't. The thing um, about King Lear that strikes me the most is when you're reading it, is it's a play that focuses a lot on isolation, uh, which is obviously a massive part of, uh, of what we're all living right now in, in lockdown, is that isolation from uh, human contact, from friends, from family. Um, which is uh, such an important part of human life. Um, and it's the reason why, you know, a lot of people do break lockdown rules um, and, and feel the need to have to see people. Uh, it, it is a basic human need. Belongingness is, is something that's very natural to us. It's something that we have been, um, that humans have been bred for. We're herd animals by nature. What is striking about King Lear is the separation of himself from his family. Uh, so there aren't any, really that many scenes that King Lear himself shares with his daughters. When you look at the play, there's actually not that many big ensemble scenes either. There's, a, there's, there's actually, uh, considering other Shakespeare plays, there's very few. Um, it's limited to small groups of people. And Lear very rarely is on stage with uh, any three of his daughters, either Reagan, uh, Goneril or Cordelia. So it's almost like it's mirroring that type of separation that you have from your family. Um, and the play does feel quite segmented in that, is that you, you're seeing lots of different storylines happen and oftentimes the scenes have very, very few people in. Uh, Lear himself, you know, he takes himself off into the to the moors to 
be a bit dramatic in general um, because Lear is very dramatic, but he's he he leans into this this mental illness that you could say is linked directly to the fact that he is having no human contact. Um, he is pushing himself into isolation, and that could be linked directly into his madness. Uh, another thing people often say about King Lear is it's the of the tragedies, it's the most tragic of them because it just doesn't let up. There isn't really any comedy. I mean, it has the fool, and the fool probably has about three jokes uh, in his entire part. It's mostly there just to, uh, it's a bit of a foil or a bit of a, a highlight exactly how off the deep end Lear is going. Um, it's just, it starts off, really tragic and then it gets worse and then people lose their eyeballs and then someone wants to kill themselves and then and then it ends on just this senseless death of Cordelia that that you think just last minute maybe isn't going to happen but of course it does because even at that point when they're like oh maybe maybe Cordelia won't die uh, but the audience at that point is like no she's definitely already dead like, of course she's dead and th this was a big part of the plague as well, was the, um, it, it hit the young people more than it hit the elderly. Uh, people between, I think it was 10 and 30 were the most vulnerable. And, and that's the biggest tragedy when you look at, at, at plagues like that. It's hitting these young people whose lives have barely begun. It's senseless death. And Cordelia's death feels senseless. As does really Goneril and, and Reagan's. Wait, do they both die? Yes, they both die. I can't remember. It's such a such a dark play that I forget who dies and who doesn't. Um, but he, you know, his, his 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 family dies. His youngest daughter dies. He's really done absolutely nothing wrong. And it's just like, why? Why is there all this death? There is no happy ending in it. There's not even any really satisfying resolution. It's just life is sometimes really awful. That's kind of kind of it um so that I, I think that reflects quite well what it what it does feel like living through a time of such uncertainty is it's not really any good news you know living through a plague and and people are dying and then eventually you're going to come out of the plague but those people have already died and you have to start looking at what has this shown us about society? What has this shown us about the unfairness of society? What has shown us about how different people are struggling and you know different um you know, death rates are, are different depending on whatever you live in because of poverty. Um, ethnicity is becoming a big thing. Um, you know, minority groups are suffering more than uh, certain other groups. Um, poor children are falling behind more than, than children from more affluent areas. And it's just unfair. And that unfairness is brought across really well in Lear. There's no resolution, there's no happy ending. It's just, it's just tragedy. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of my my initial thoughts on on Lear. Thank you, Charlotte. I mean, I, I I love the way you've made us think about Lear's separation from his family as a kind of driving force in the play. And of course, um, in in a sense, it's kind of self imposed, isn't it? But not not intentionally and. Yeah, those scenes where he's traveling around from one daughter to another trying to find a, a place of welcome. And indeed, e even the, the very moving scene at the end when he's reunited with Cordelia. Um, 
I, I think you've you've sort of made me think about the connectedness of that theme through through those scenes by focusing in on that. Um, can I bring in um, others as well? Would you like to respond or ask Charlotte's question? Um, I, I think it's really interesting um, to consider the the aspect of, of mental illness in in respect to uh, plague. I think especially when we think about um, pandemics and epidemics uh, in the distant past especially going back to even like medieval periods we often forget um that mental effects were as prevalent as of course the physical damage being done by these diseases and i think we there's this weird framing of mental illness as because uh the science surrounding it is quite modern people often think that its very existence is a modern thing and that it's like no one got depressed before there were psychiatrists and it's that's that's not the case obviously um and there's often this this sort of romantic um romanticization or is that even a word romanticism i suppose um within literature where things are, are dubbed like madness you know there's often this and there's this sort of romantic element to to madness with like these characters like king lear and uh, you know figures in sort of like modern uh, early modern literature like Edgar Allan Poe and how mad he was when really these individuals are just very very unwell um and i think it's interesting to to, to analyze the fact that whether it's a physical illness like the plague or a mental illness like depression or anxiety or, or a full-on psychosis as, as to what uh, King Lear is suffering from by the end of it, these things are always interlinked. You know, that il illness mm. is illness, regardless of which part of the body is being attacked. Yeah, I think they do, Lee is mad, like his madness, whatever it is. Um, I think Shakespeare does mental illness really well because I, I think you can make a very good argument that he definitely, I would argue, that the evidence is there that he did probably uh, suffer from depression at some point in his life. And I think Lee has done really well because he does have this irrationality about him. Uh, the anger at the world and the anger that he turns inwards at himself uh, the fact that he does want to pull himself away and he kind of feels like he doesn't have any choice um, but there sort of is choices but sometimes there aren't choices um, and yeah everyone keeps talking about right now oh we're going to return to normal everything's going to return to normality um, but the reality is the, the the mental health scars that we are going to carry on from this pandemic aren't going to disappear as soon as social distancing disappears. We're going to have to work on the nation's mental health, which is something that we've never been good at working on because everybody dismisses mental health as like, oh, we can't afford to, you know, have counsellors in schools. We can't afford to have therapy for everybody. Um, and then they go around like, oh, I wonder why suicide rates are so high. Maybe they're linked. I don't know. Not a scientist or anything, but possibly a bit of a cause and effect. We're not, this isn't going to disappear. The mental illness issue is only going to get worse if we don't address it. And we need to learn not just about, you know, how to keep ourselves healthy, but how to keep ourselves mentally well 
at the same time um so i think people are going to be expecting to be like i feel a bit down in lockdown as soon as lockdown ends everything's going to be better and then they're going to get frustrated that they don't instantly feel better because that's just not how mental illness and mental health works um so we need to focus on that a lot more as a nation whether we do or not it's gonna be something we see um i don't want to place bets but we'll see well, I think that's that's something that's really important. And I, I think we're already starting to see, and I'm sure um, you, you'd be seeing this by, um, you know, the work you do in a school. And I, I'm, I'm involved with schools in a school governance role. And I know that um, schools are already doing an enormous amount of work on that transition back to um, something like normal and, and having to pick up a lot of um, mental health issues in in pupils as part of that process. Um, but I, th I mean, I think Lear is is kind of famous as a play for, um, I guess, interpretations of you know what causes Lear to do what he does as being in some way linked with something to do with old age and mental health, like possibly a form of dementia. And um, of course, that connects brilliantly with what you said about isolation. And, and you know, we know sadly that uh, there have been so many stories this year, you know, and the frustration of people who've had their relatives in care homes and been unable to visit them. So we, we know what the effect of that um, separation has been for many, many people. Yeah. Sarah, did you want to come in on Lear? I mean, I'm very interested in the idea of isolation and I'll pick it up a little bit when I'm talking about As You Like It because Shakespeare seems to me to spend a lot of time thinking about what it is like to be separated uh, from your loved ones or to be banished, to be sent away. Um, and I think that's part of the experience of, of the people at the time. Um, through, through the plague, and it's certainly the experience of people nowadays, uh, that, that sense of separation, whether it's self-imposed almost as it is in Lear, although, as you say, he doesn't actually mean it like that, but that's that's the result of it. I mean, he is like the, you know, the, the, um, the, old, the old parent who, you know, gives up all of his money and, and ends up getting put in a care home by mm. his, his, his children when he thought he would be able to stay at home and be looked after. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, it's happening every, every, every place around us and it, it's very, very sad. Um, but you also get, you know, I mean, when you think about madness, you always think about Hamlet. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was sent away. He was he was off at university and, of course, comes back and, and the, the whole family situation has changed. And I suppose that links to what you were saying, Charlotte, you know, the idea is you can't necessarily go back to normal when things have happened so that the whole status quo just doesn't exist anymore. So, uh, um, yes, and, and the effect on young people, I think, is is very powerful and obviously Lear is the, is the is the play that deals probably most fully with that that parent child relationship a lot of the a lot of the plays do do explore it but uh, um, and yes I've been in education for, for many years but also um, talking to my daughter uh, about uh, the effect of it on my grandchildren uh, even very young grandchildren you know who are kind of two and three. 
um, that the changes in them because they don't really understand about lockdown. And she said to me the other day that one of the things that's upset her most is that her children have gone from optimists to pessimists. Because whenever she says, you know, we'll do this or we'll do that, they say, well, it might be cancelled. We won't be able to. We can't take our friends with us. And she is 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 worried that it's going to take them a long time to readjust. You know, you, you get the feeling that sometimes people think, particularly little children, will just bounce back. It'll be fine. But it's it's deep and, and it is going to take a long, long time uh, for us to restore that that sort of sense of security for them, I suppose, when we emerge from this. Well, let, let's um, let's try and be optimistic about one thing, because I'm sure one thing we're all um, hoping very much is that when we can put on some plays again, that those will really contribute to people's well-being. Because I think we we all believe that theatre can do that for people. Mm-hmm. So um, let's all, let's hope that uh, can be sooner rather than later. I'm going to suggest we uh, move on to um, Kieran. And uh, Kieran, would you like to introduce us to the play you're going to talk about? Sorry, um, the mute button is being funny there. I am going to talk about The Merchant of Venice. Um, kind of in and around the idea of, of plague and and it, the epidemic outbreaks um, that surrounded it from its, its arrival in, in, at least in Britain, in about the, about the 1320s is probably the first time it sort of showed up. But before I, I go into that, there's one, a couple of little things I wanted to add, which I thought were interesting, um, especially since, John, you're going to be directing uh, Thomas More. And that is that one of the first national proclamations um, uh, to deal with the spreading of plague in 1518 was officially promulgated by Thomas More. And that was the hanging of of straw in front of houses that had the plague and the carrying of white sticks Mm -hmm. by people who had been inside plague houses. And I also think it's interesting that in Thomas More's Utopia, he specifies that the society, um, this utopian society, in the past had to deal with two great outbreaks of plague, which just sort of uh, emphasises how ubiquitous um, that it was that even in Thomas More's perfect society, there was still an outbreak of yeah. plague. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I sort of like to touch upon uh, surrounding the much of the Venice is the idea of, of persecution and superstition. And in this, we can very much see that nothing has changed, um, especially within the the outbreaks of uh, persecution towards Asian communities, um, especially in, in America. Hashtag stop Asian hate. Seriously, stop it. it it's not it's bad. Um, and, you know, these sort of old superstitions that are going around about how 5G towers are spreading COVID um, and the rest of it in throughout the, the medieval, the sort of middle and late medieval period um, when plague was at, at its height um, there were massacres uh, in Provenance, Barcelona, Erfurt, Basel, Aragon and Flanders as well as many other places. 2,000 uh, Jewish people were burnt alive on the 14th of February um, in the Valentine's Day massacre at Strasbourg 
And this was all between 1348 and 1351 in the, the great uh, pandemic, often labelled the Black Death. Around 510 Jewish communities were just completely destroyed um, in this period. Um, and there were superstitions going around both the uh, Jewish people were causing the plague and some claiming that they were poisoning wells and this is how it was going around, as well as um, superstitions that... Jewish people were immune to the plague, um, which is probably connected to the fact that they were often ghettoized. And so uh, if the plague didn't, the the way the plague spreads, which I'll go into a little bit more in the sort of second part of what I want to discuss, uh, meant that unless it was brought into a community, it was very unlikely that that community would uh, catch it from person to person contact. Um, it was more surrounding goods and because the, the, these people were ghettoized, often the, the trade was only amongst their own um, people. And because of this, some Jewish communities went largely unaffected. And also there's theories surrounding the fact that there are uh, Jewish religious laws around cleanliness, such as you have to wash your hands before you're allowed to eat bread um, and that you have to wash every week uh, before the Sabbath. And that this in comparison to some of the Christian communities and the uh, unhygienic nature of the way that they went about and uh, meant that it was less likely for these people to catch um, the plague. And of course, The Merchant of Venice is very much a story about uh, persecution, whether it be the persecution of Shylock uh, or the persecution of, of Portia. In, in this scenario, the, the, the persecution of the Jewish people surrounding Shylock is more pertinent. But I, I just add that in because I think often the, the kind of the misogyny that is placed on Portia often gets put in the shadows in comparison to the light that people often discuss um, the, the anti-Semitism within the play. Um, and uh, as well as these sort of superstitions surrounding um, the Jewish people, there were all kinds of ridiculous things that were going around. Um, one of the the sort of most humorous and also most horrific superstitions that went around was there was an idea that catching syphilis would make you immune to the plague. And so there were individuals who purposely tried to catch syphilis because they thought that it would stop them getting the plague. Um, at, because the, the miasma theory of disease was all the rage from the medieval period all the way into the middle of the 19th century, the idea of the plague was being spread by these miasmic evil things in the air, um, this sort of like evil gas no one could see, uh, the theory that onions could absorb um, the plague started going around and the reason that they go black when they rot is because they're absorbing all the black miasma in the air that you can't see and so one member of parliament during the uh, the great plague of the 1665 suggested filling an entire ship with onions sailing it down the Thames so it would absorb um, all of the miasma in London and, and stop people getting sick from the plague um, and I think that it, what is really unfortunate is that a lot of this superstition surrounding it um, got in the way of any real ability to tackle this disease because the way that it spread was so different to most other uh, endemic diseases of the time like uh, smallpox or uh, syphilis for example of course that didn't come until a while later in the you know after the the Columbian exchange but still 
Um, and one of the, the superstitious ways to get rid of it was um, the release of smokes and, and gases and things within a house. And there was a, there's a recording of the, a doctor who was paid lots and lots of money by the British government um, during the Great Plague of 1665 uh, to remove plague from houses in which he burned sulphur, brimstone and lots of other things. And this actually seemed to work. But the reason it probably worked is that the fumes were so noxious, it drove out all the rats in the house, which was the real cause. Um, and to sort of bring it back to Merchant of Venice and Shakespeare, the other thing the Merchant of Venice is uh, very, very much concerned with is trade. Um, it is literally in the title and it's all about a business transaction. And one of the major plot points of this business transaction is that Antonio's ships, his ventures out in the world, they all get scuttled um, and lost and destroyed. And this is why he can't pay back Shylock and thus he tries to take the pound of flesh. And business transactions being scuttled by plague um, was something that was very, very common because once people started realising that you know, it, it could be spread um, from one place to another by people traveling around. And um, one of the first things that they would do is, is not allow boats to uh, allow people off boats traveling from a place that they'd heard plague was. Or there is often plague passports would be given. You'd have to have like a, a written note from the, the parish you were from, often from clergy, um, saying that this person has not been in a house where the pestilence is. And um, what is really interesting I think, um, is that the world of Shakespeare and his existence and the, the art that he created existing was so um, tied to it, you could argue that it wouldn't exist were it not for trade and suburbanization, which were also the biggest causes of the plague. Um, studies have shown that the rat flea would rather transport itself within cloth and grain supply than on actual individuals, uh, on, on humans. And so if it had just been the movement of people themselves, there would have been a lot less transference of the plague than it, if it was actual trade goods being moved about. And of course, about the trade network, a lot of these texts um, from ancient Greece, which were coming from uh, you know, the, the, the Muslim world, um, which had not suffered from, you know, what was causing the Dark Age and all the rest of it. Uh, these ancient Greek texts, which inspired Shakespeare um, and these sort of really old stories from uh, Italy and uh, that sort of area, which were inspiring Shakespeare's tales. Um, he, he wouldn't have had the sort of subjects to write on and he wouldn't have had the same kind of education that he had. And if it wasn't for the suburbanization of places like London, there wouldn't have been the population to come to so much theatre. Uh, and the problem with suburbanization is that often you end up killing a lot of the surrounding wildlife, larger predatory creatures like foxes and wolves and things like that, and leaving the smaller disease carrying animals that they would be killing. For example, in the 1980s, um, due to certain suburbanization products, projects, the, the white-footed mouse became much more populous than it should be, and thus Lyme disease began to spread throughout the population. And, and I think it's just interesting. Shylock even mentions it at one point when he's talking about um, the things that could stop Antonio's uh, uh, trades. He says there are land rats and water rats. Um, and he's probably he's saying that as a metaphor for, for thieves, as he later says, I mean, pirates. But literally, 
the travel of rats was probably more inconducive to uh, trade than the travel of, of the moving of, of pirates around the world. Um, we know that the plague was only spread by house rats and not not field rats. Um, and house rats are not migratory creatures. They only moved with trade vessels in, in the bowels of ships or within large wagons. And so it is basically completely our fault, really, that these epidemics kept happening um, and that the growing of the world that Shakespeare um, lived within, um, you know, from the sort of um, middle medieval period when the Black Death happened, uh, up to Shakespeare and, and beyond to like the Great Plague of 1665, which probably ki which killed more people than any other uh, epidemic in England to that point. Um, there's a lot of data that suggests that the Black Death didn't kill nearly as many people as is often said um, for reasons I won't go into because I realise I'm taking up a lot of time anyway. Um, but my main point is that it is, that it's these urban centres um, and the these sort of cultural um, uh, these cultural festivals like uh, plays and markets and things like that, which really caused um, the plague. And and one last thing that I will mention to, to to answer your question, John, when you wonder why there isn't a play that is specifically about the plague, I think it's because it's so ubiquitous that we often think of uh, the plague as like the Black Death and then maybe like some of the plagues during Shakespeare's time. But this was something that was happening like every 20 years, if not less, throughout Europe, there would be outbreaks of the plague. Um, it, it was at the point where a lot of people believed that it happened every time a king died. It was just something God did to wash away the sins of the previous reign. Uh, and I think it was so ubiquitous and so commonplace that I'm not sure if people really needed a play focusing on it. Everybody had experienced this. Everybody had lived through it. And I think it's something that hasn't really stopped. You know, we, we look at COVID now and it, obviously it's horrific for us, but we, there was SARS in 2003, H1N1 in 2009, a series of Ebola outbreaks around 2014, MERS and Zika in 2015. This is something that keeps happening and we are not really doing much to prevent it. Um, and yeah, I'm going to stop talking now because I've probably been going on for a long time. Well, th thanks, Kieran. There's so many different things in what you've you've said. I, I don't think I'll get that image of the um, onions going <laughs> down the Thames out of my head for a, a, a long time. But kind of more seriously, um, I mean, I think that ubiquitousness is in evidence in Shakespeare in some ways through things like... Um, the way in which the plague is used as a as a kind of an everyday curse, mm. um, and actually, one thing I did look up was which which play uses the word plague or which plays use the word plague more than any others, and the answer is the Henry the Fourth plays because Falstaff uses it as a curse right. repeatedly, uh, and you could start to say something very clever like they're like well actually. You know, his full staff are kind of, and his values are kind of plague on the country that Hal eventually has to eradicate. But um, the simpler way of looking at it, I think, connects with what you just said that the plague is so much everywhere that it's a, an offhand curse for him. 
Um, it's uh, only ever mentioned once in Merchant of Venice. Yeah. Um, Shylock says, I'll plague him in reference to Antonio. Mm. And then the only other mention of disease is in the uh, the Do Not I speech where he says, suffer from the same diseases. And I think that's very interesting that mm. because of the persecution of the Jewish people surrounding plagues, the only character in it that mentions plagues or diseases at all is Shylock and both in the sense that he is a plague and that he suffers from the same plagues as everybody else which I think is interesting well that that's connects with other things he tries to say about his humanity isn't it that he's like you know we are all the same um but I I, I think your point about plague you know, being one of the things that, um, in terms of um, anti-Semitism, that, that Jewish people have been blamed for, and, and almost that that would have been kind of automatically understood by Shakespeare's audience. Um, and so maybe there isn't a, a, a reason to kind of state that explicitly, is a very powerful point uh, to make about how it is, you know, implied in that hatred that the plague is one of the um potential causes of that hatred so th thank you um charlotte sarah would you like to come in i do have a, a thing uh so when you said kieran about how um the, the the plagues are caused by by us and then that's true in terms that we're the we're the problem because we we invariably just do stupid stuff that causes plagues. Um, but what's interesting is we're also the solution is we know how to deal with with pandemics. Um, Ten years ago, most countries had pandemic plans that they decided we don't need to spend money on those. We'll just cut them. Um, we need to find deficit money, so we'll just cut our pandemic plans. Um, and you know, everyone always says it's never an if with a pandemic, it's always a when, because that's how, you know, viruses work and bacteria works. We know that it's always around the corner. Thing is, because politics moves so fast, that could be the next government's problem. So it's almost like, I don't care, because we look so short-sightedly to this. And I think something you see in Shakespeare's plays a lot is powerful people arguing about absolute nonsense whilst individuals suffer because they're arguing about nonsense. Um, and because we polarised everything, because everything is polarised right now, um, so the issue of pandemic protection became a big polarisation point. It, it became that with Donald Trump when he was like, oh, our, our government dealt with it the best. We, uh, no, no one was even thinking about pandemics till we came across, trying to score political points. Um, I saw Johnson decided to have a pop at um, Sadiq Khan over TFL, saying absolute lies, by the way, um, in the middle of a pandemic briefing. And it's like, this isn't the time for political jibes. We're in the middle of people dying. Um, but that's something that's always been, you know, trade comes above human life. Um, housing comes above human life. Uh, everything, because the, the idea is, you know, populations replenish, but you know, I could start myself a legacy that's gonna last forever. So, so something that you do notice on Shakespeare is just powerful people consistently putting other things above human life and that's something that we see 
in this country alone, but all over the world. And that's why we had three lockdowns when New Zealand had one lockdown, you know, um, because New Zealand decided that let's try and protect the people and our government decided let's try and protect the economy. And uh, funnily enough, New Zealand has a good economy and a healthy population and we have neither. So. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you, Charlotte. And go, go New Zealand. Yeah. Um, go collectivism. Yeah. Um, I think probably we ought to move on, Sarah, if that's okay with you. So could, could, I, could I ask that's you fine. to move on to your play? Yes, indeed. And, and it links quite well, actually, uh, because um, I've chosen to look at As You Like It as an example of one of the plays of Shakespeare that, that draws on the pastoral tradition. Um, and so it does link directly with what Kieran was saying about urbanization and uh, you know density of population within the cities and within the towns and the suburbs um, being a, you know a place where disease is going to is going to thrive. Um, I mean, the pastoral tradition in, in literature goes way back. Um, you know, we're, we're back in, in, uh, in classical literature. We're back with Virgil and his eclogues. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not the only play in Shakespeare, of course, as you like it, that takes us off out of the court or out of the city into the country. Um, we've got Midsummer Night's Dream, The Love Slave is Lost, um, Winter's Tale, for that matter, where we end up in Bohemia. Um, and of course, The Tempest, uh, about as far away from civilization as you could possibly be. Um, I'm not suggesting that Shakespeare uses this pastoral tradition just because of plague, but it does fit quite well with the idea of distancing oneself from the city and the court. Um, as you like it, um, again, with many of Shakespeare's plays, we don't know exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly uh, the performance uh, details, but we're pretty sure that it was performed uh, in 1603, which was one of the years that the, the, the London theatres were closed and uh, Shakespeare and his, his, uh, his players had to go uh, out into the countryside, go and visit small towns like uh, Ipswich and what have you. And they ended up at Wilton House uh, down in Wiltshire. And uh, we're pretty sure there was a production of it there. Wilton House is actually quite important for Renaissance literature because the Sydney family were associated with it and they wrote lots of pastoral things as well. Um, without going into too much detail, I mean, the pastoral tradition, you know, what, what is a pastoral um, piece of literature? Well, basically there are sheep in it um, and shepherds, uh, but it's, it's set in the countryside and there is something quite restorative about being in the countryside, um, a place where, uh, yes, there's bad weather um, and yes, the life is tough, but, um it's it's a simple life and you can see nature and the cycles in nature um and that that in and of itself kind of restores you gives you a perspective um distances you as you know you, charlotte you were talking about you know the kind of petty politics and the distractions rather than seeing the big picture and i think as you like it helps us to see the big picture um, when everybody goes off into the forest of Arden. Um, I think, um, you know, a lot of what we hear about in terms of how are people coping during our lockdowns um, is, is going out into the garden, if they've got a garden, 
Um, you know, there's been a huge boom in, in people planting things, um, you know, enjoying nature, uh, trying to get out and see nature. Um, and I'm sure the same, you know, applies in, in Shakespeare's time when the cities were bleak um, and the urban centres were the place where disease was rife. Uh, if you could get away from it, and of course some people could, um, others of course not, um, you know, there was a simple life and a life that was more healthy and, and a life that perhaps gave a, a better perspective and a sense of hope um, uh, that, uh, that, that, yes, could restore and, and, and be something quite positive. I'm trying to be quite the positive one here uh, in, in terms of uh, how Shakespeare responded to plague and, and how those around him did. I mean, there are references to the golden world. Um, and you've got the court of, of the Duke who's been banished, another isolated character. He's been banished, separated from his family, uh, but he's out there in nature uh, and enjoying it. Uh, and he's finding, how, how does he put it? He talks about the uh, finding tongues in trees and books in the running brooks, sermons in stones and good in everything. And he 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 um, he contrasts that with the uh, the kind of uh, corruption of the court um, and um, corruption and disease is often associated with the life of the political life of of the court in in lots of of, of Shakespeare's plays. Um, and he he refers to Robin Hood and says, you know, everybody's going to live with the Jew out in the countryside, uh, like in the old legend. And so there's that kind of harking back to a simpler time, a healthier time, a time of, of um, you know, natural uh, existence rather than the urban life that so many people that the Shakespeare's audience would have found themselves in. Um, so there's a kind of nostalgia there. And I think, again, there's a huge amount of nostalgia in our society at the moment for, you know, times, better times, times when we could go, you know, and sit in the garden, times we could go to the beach, times we could go on holiday. Uh, and so there's a hankering for that. But there's also a recognition that, you know, there are cycles of life. Um, things live, things die. Um, we've got the seven ages of man. Um, you know, we're, we're born, but, but uh, you know, there is a pattern to things. But I think all of that is, is really quite reassuring uh, that you're seeing, you know, any current situation in from the perspective of that kind of bigger picture. So, yeah, I mean, there are various references uh, in, in the play to um, uh, obviously to the countryside and, and what it does. But, but also, interestingly, Jaquiz, who's the, who's the character who gives us the seven ages of man, um, he talks about... Uh, saying he will through and through cleanse the foul body of the infected world if they will patently receive my medicine, which I think is very interesting. So the idea that actually if you listen to somebody who has got philosophy and uh, you know, a kind of uh, rational commentary on life, it will actually improve people and they will get better. They will you know, emerge from their infected ways of thinking. Um, Jacobs is a very interesting character, of course, because he's melancholy, he doesn't really fit in, he's not part of the happy ending at the end of the play, so he's the philosopher. Um, but he is also enchanted uh, by what he finds uh, out, out in nature, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and he's loyal to the Duke. And I think that the, the play is about 
loyalty. It's about finding uh, what what are your um, priorities. Um, and, I, and again, to me, that relates very clearly to what people are doing at the moment. We've already talked about how difficult it will be to kind of come back from this and that, you know, the status quo won't necessarily be the same. But I think that sense of priorities, that sense of, you know, the, the simplicity uh, of life, the, the importance of looking after the elderly. I mean, my goodness, we've got Adam, old Adam in the play. Um, it's very telling that at the end of the seven ages of man, where you end up with, um, you know, old age, sans teeth, sans everything, and then in walks Adam. And he is old, but he is still valued and he's he's valuable you know he's helped orlando he's helped orlando to to escape he's warned him that he's in danger he's gone out into the forest with him um and you know that that kind of loyalty from the old generation to the younger generation and vice versa with orlando looking after um adam in a way that leah's daughters certainly don't look after him um so you know the, the sense of priorities the sense of loyalty family um and that escape into nature uh which you could argue you know for some people has been a bit kind of superficial um during during lockdowns people you know kind of having a go at you know planting a tomato and 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 getting something out of it but actually it, it is simple things like that that really are helpful um and put things in perspective so for me it's as you like it and the as, and the other pastoral plays as well that give us that sense um that perhaps shakespeare's exploring how we can get away from the places uh where the infection is um and actually you know recognize the the the, the joy that there that can be and and the health that there can be far away from the city and the and the corrupt court. So that's really what I wanted to contribute in terms of as you like it. I'd be very interested if you've got any ideas about it. Thank you, Sarah. I, I think one of the things I, I found myself thinking about most as you were talking was the whole thing about Jaquist and you, you mentioned the end of the play. And, and of course, there is a bit of a sen sense <clears throat> at the end of the play of everyone except him going back to their normal lives and therefore presumably going back to the city in in one way or another and and i guess that that feels a bit like kind of where we are now when we're we're talking about you know some people actually feeling very anxious about returning to um what we previously regarded as normality um but it, it would seem to me that um whenever Shakespeare explores these kinds of alternative lifestyles in the kinds of places that you've talked about, there is there there is usually at least um some call um to go back and face what the the realities are with but hopefully taking some new learning with that. I mean absolutely you know, I mean you you get yeah. this at the end of um uh, Love's Labour's Lost is is a very good example where you know you've got they've been out in in the countryside and you've got the 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 three women and the three men and they've all been wooed and you know it all seems very light and then right at the end of the play sorry spoiler alert for those of you who don't know it uh, but the princess's father has died and news comes and then the whole tone has to change 
because they have to go back. She has to go back. And, you know, Barone, her, 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 her uh, wooer, wants to, um, you know, pursue their, their romance. And, and she says, no, you know, we, we can't yeah. do this and tells me to go off and, and actually tells me to go off to a hospital and tell jokes there and trying to get people to laugh there for a mm -hmm. year before she'll even consider getting back together with him, which is very chilling, actually. Mm, mm. Um, and you've got that lovely line where, you know, um, she says, do something for a 12 month and a day. And then they say, well, that's too long for a play, <laughs> uh, you know, and you're back to reality. And at the end of The Tempest as well, of course, you've got to go back, you know, you've been on the island, but you've got to go back. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, they all have to go back, as you say. And, mm. uh, and that is where we are at the moment. Mm. Thank you. Charlotte or Kieran, do you want to come in? Um, yeah, I had a, a, a couple of things I wanted to say. I thought it was it was very um, poignant uh, when you said of those who could afford to get away, because that was a very, very big mm. part of it. Um, the, the bubonic plague especially was considered uh, a disease of the poor. Um, because of the way that it, it spread, um, not only were, it, were people able to get out of, of cities and, and urban areas to, to escape the spread, but living within stone houses made a very, very big difference to whether you'd get the plague. Because for bubonic plague to spread to people, first it has to ravage the, pop, the rat population to the point where the fleas um, become blocked with the bacteria and un, un, then go into this ravenous hunger where they will bite anything. And that's when they start biting people. And if you don't have a large population of rats in your house, you're almost, it's very unlikely that you'll get bubonic plague at all. And interestingly that you mentioned 1603, um, the proclamation of 1603 uh, in London specifically attributed the epidemic of that year to the pestering of excessive numbers of idle, indigent, dissolute and dangerous persons in small and straight rooms and habitations. And so literally blamed the poor for why the disease was going around, like why it even happened. Um, and yeah, I think it is, it's very, it's very pertinent that the, the individuals who are in the woods already is, is a court in itself. Um, and it, it's, yeah, in these situations, it is almost always the, the, the poorest people who suffer the most. Um, sorry, I realised that your, your, uh, your little speech was trying to lift us up and I've just brought us <laughs> back down. Well, I, I guess, I guess in, in a way, we, we've been talking throughout about you know what the learning is haven't we from the these experiences whether it's what the characters learn in Shakespeare's plays or whether it's what we're learning now and perhaps the most positive thing about all of this is to try to make sure that we genuinely do learn uh, you know that connects with what Charlotte was saying about having proper pandemic policies and things in place so it's about political things but it's also about what we actually value in our lives and how we choose to live them and what what we find most important in terms of our relationships and our experiences so I mean that that seems totally positive to me as, as something to take from all of this. Charlotte did you did you want to come in on what anything Sarah had to say? Uh, not, not particularly but yeah I, I do think it, it, it's quite you know, telling how optimistic we we are as a bit of a na as a nation. Um, every time we think, you know, we, I think we all kind of did buy it a little bit last year when it was like twelve weeks, 
then then it will be fine we'll go back to normal and we're becoming mm. a bit more pessimistic but you can see you know everybody right now is like oh 12th everything's going to go almost back to normal um and, and we're all kind of believing it because you, you kind of have to see the brighter side and believe in a brighter side and i guess that's the the what man always is like they always want to have you have to see a brighter future because otherwise how can you live with the the present if you can't imagine there's going to be something better um which isn't i guess a weakness but it kind of is a little bit because you know sometimes you have to fight for that better future um but you know it is quite nice to see when you when you see people making plans even if you think it might not actually happen people are endlessly optimistic there's always somewhere you can draw optimism from and I think you know it's nice to it was probably a relief for people in Shakespeare's time to go and see a farcical play about people running away in the woods and finding themselves and then at the end all the corruption that seemed like a really big point in the first like five minutes of the play and then you kind of don't talk about it anymore is kind of magically solved and that's quite nice that oh yay it's done everyone's happy apart from Jaquees but that's okay because he was a bit weird thanks thanks Charlotte oh, okay um I'm going to go on now to talk a bit about measure for measure and uh um I hadn't expected the 1603 proclamation to kind of come up so much because it is directly relevant to measure for measure as you as you'll see um, and indeed, the whole business about crowded uh, urban um, locations, but uh, uh, more about that a little bit later on. I, I chose Measure for Measure because um, I, I read a couple of things, including something by um, the uh, Shakespeare scholar Emma Smith, um, in which she argues that the two plays that she sees as being most influenced by the plague uh, are Othello and Measure for Measure, um, which she believes were written in the big 1603 um, theatre closure period that we talked about. And um, her argument about Iago, I kind of, I, to be honest, I haven't read the detail of it, but I didn't like her headline statement about it because she, she talks about Iago as a, as a kind of super spreader. And, and it seems to me that isn't the right analogy for, for Iago because his, his um, malevolence is so kind of pointedly targeted. So it feels to me he's more like Novichok or something, you know, sort of attacking one individual in a, in a very aggressive way. So I thought, um, not sure about that. So I'll have a look at measure for measure. Um, and while I was thinking about this today, I was very struck by the news item today about an Amnesty International uh, report, which has come out about how governments have been responding to the pandemic that mentioned two things that are, are totally on message as far as measure for measure. The first is that about how governments have been taking additional powers for themselves and acting um, more strictly with the powers that they already had. And the second is about how some governments have been manipulating and controlling information to uh, achieve the effects that they, they want, want to achieve. So it's quite a critical report that 
Amnesty have come out uh, with today. And um, when you look at measure for measure as a problem play and about how the leaders in Vienna are dealing with the situation that they are, those two issues are immediately there. And first of all, it's very clearly Angelo's strict interpretation of the law that leads to Claudio's death sentence for getting his fiance pregnant. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the play about the fact that at the time, um, okay, strictly speaking, he wasn't married, but nevertheless had gone through um, processes in terms of preparation for marriage that would have meant that a kind of much more common view would have been that, uh, you know, if you get, get your girlfriend pregnant at that stage, it's not actually uh, an issue that ought, ought to suggest that you get executed for that. So there's that um, taking of power in Angelo, but also when the Duke goes about trying to bring about the, the famous denouement that, that there is in Act 5 of um, Measure for Measure, it's very clear that a lot of the time he, he gets the point that he wants to get to by withholding information from various people. And, and some of that withholding of information um, has been sort of repeatedly worried over by critics trying to find some kind of explanation of it. The most famous one is when he fails to tell Isabella that, in fact, um, uh, her brother hasn't been executed when there's really no good reason why he shouldn't tell her at all in terms of what's going on in the relationships in the play. Um, the only grounds he has for doing that are to manipulate the situation to contribute to the denouement that he wants. So you immediately have two leaders who are, who are behaving with the same kind of limitations that Amnesty are attributing to governments now. And we've, we've seen those concerns expressed, haven't we, in the anti-lockdown protests that have been in many countries, probably the discussion now about vaccine passports. Um, and today, um, people complaining both about the infringement of civil liberties and um, the lack of, quite often there have been complaints about the lack of clear information from government about what's going to happen next. And Today, um, there, there's been discussion about that in relation to the international travel thing not being clear, uh, and so it goes on. Um, so then when you look into a bit more of the historical context, um, I Measure for Measure was first performed for James I in, in 1604 on Boxing Day, and James I was, of course, the new king. Uh, and some critics have read the the portrait of the Duke as a kind of flattering portrayal of what James I might be seen as, as a kind of moderate ruler who combined, who combined or who would combine justice and mercy appropriately in his reign. And that was actually the theme of his coronation sermon. Um, so it was clearly an issue that was kind of very li live as, as this new king came to power. What's he going to be like? Everybody wanted to know. Um, so um, what's interesting then is to say um, 
what's the connection with that issue, which was a real one at the time with the plague? Well, um, in Act 1, Scene 2, so very early in the play, Shakespeare introduces the pox uh, as the illness that's affecting Vienna. And that happens through characters like Mistress Overdone and Pompey. Um, and they make it clear that there's there's an epidemic of sexually transmitted disease in Vienna. But the connection to London and the plague is that in that scene, the character Pompey announces, was, oh, did I know we were going to be talking about suburbs tonight? All houses in the suburbs of Vienna must be plucked down. And that's regarded as a, as a reference to the 1603 proclamation that's been mentioned, part of which in it, in relation to the dissolute behavior of the poor that has been covered, is specifically about um, demolishing the houses in the area where all the um, brothels were and all the prostitutes lived. So what was really going on in that um, proclamation? Was it about getting rid of the plague? Was it about blaming the poor? Um, was it about using the plague as an opportunity to take other kinds of action that are limiting social interaction? And that that was the real uh, objective of the government. So it seems very unlikely that an audience in Shakespeare's time wouldn't have immediately seen the pox in Vienna as being a parallel that was being created to the plague in London. Um, so um, what's more about James I is that James himself was very like the Duke when the Duke, um, as you will know, um, decides to make himself absent and not deal with the problems in the city himself, arguing that a more strict approach is needed and he's not the person who can do that. Well, James himself, um, he came to the throne just as there was this outbreak of the plague. Um, he took ages to get to London, which caused a lot of criticism initially. But then even when he got to London, as soon as the plague started up, he took the court out into the country and did a kind of endless progress, which actually didn't do much good because they got the plague even in the court when it was out of London. Um, but there's the same sense of an absent ruler leaving other people to get on with solving the, the problems. Um, then there's the issue about kind of parentary justice and, and Angelo making this decision to um, have Claudio executed. And it can be argued that James was a bit like that himself because he even traveling down to London, he personally um, sentenced a thief to death uh, in Newark and it's a very famous case because it's the last time that um, the royal prerogative was used in England to execute somebody um, and even the bits in the play where um, people are, are, are not given all the information like you know they're not told um, the truth about who's dead and who's still alive or they're threatened with execution James did that himself. There was a, a thing called the Bi Conspiracy, where um, which was regarded as a which was a plot against James, although probably not a very serious one. Um, and in that 
in, in the outcome of that, James actually sent people to the scaffold knowing that he was going to reprieve them um, and they didn't know that was going to happen. Um, and there, there were some people who he gave a reprieve but still told were going to be executed later by telling them that he was having mercy on their souls by allowing them to prepare themselves spiritually. Now what happens in uh, Measure for Measure? The character Barnardine, who's in prison and is due to be executed, very comic, well, probably the funniest scene in the play, actually re this guy refuses to be executed. And the reason he gives for refusing to be executed is that he needs to prepare himself spiritually. Um, so it's very difficult to believe that the um, Jacobean audience wouldn't have seen some real tensions around the whole management of the plague and about James's behaviour as a new um, monarch um, as being the context in, in which the play is set. So having brought James in as a new king, that obviously gives me the opportunity to talk about Boris Johnson, which I'm sure you'll all be pleased to hear. Because after all, Boris became prime minister and is, a, is our new national leader, just as all this happens. And in, what have we been doing? Just like the people in 1603 were sitting there arguing about what kind of leader James was going to be and watching two, I would argue, in the Duke and Angelo failed lead or failing leaders in measure for measure. We've been spending our time discussing Boris's libertarian credentials and his supposed belief in, um, you know, the freedom of the individual being set against the, the strict regime of rules that he's chosen to impose on society. Now, I'm not talking about the rights and the wrongs of that, but it just struck me as a, that, you know, it's another example of the real management of plague being reflected in the real management of coronavirus in 2020-21. Um, um, so um, one last thing, because I couldn't finish without talking about Dominic Cummings. Um, of course, why, um, why uh, Angelo is despised eventually is because he imposes strict rules and is then shown to be a complete hypocrite. Um, for those of you, you know, anyone watching who doesn't know the, the plot of the play, having sentenced a guy to death for having sex outside of marriage, he then attempts to sexually force himself in, in effect on, on a woman who wants to be a nun um, and exploits his power to do that, which is actually far worse than um, what uh, Claudio, the man he's going to execute, has done. And as Claudio himself puts it, he says, has he affections in him that thus can make him bite the law by the nose when he would enforce it? Well, biting the law on the nose is mocking the law. And, you know, if that isn't Dominic Cummings and Cummings and Barnard Castle, um, I don't know what is. Um, so my, my view, having kind of looked into this, and it's helped me to understand measure for measure a lot more to think about it like this, is that it's absolutely kind of on message about these issues of how to manage a pandemic, 
um, what leadership in times of crisis is like. Uh, and um, that being combined also with, with people thinking about new leaders and how they are tested by um, such circumstances. So thank you. And anyone like to come back on that? Sarah. I was going to say, I, mean, I think it's fascinating. Um, uh, and, and those those parallels, um, uh, which I, I certainly didn't know about before, but but a more general point about leadership, because I mean, certainly I think before the pandemic, before all of this, you know, obviously we wanted to know what was going on in the government and we were interested in who was prime minister and what have you. But suddenly, you know, leadership is so important in these times of crisis and people are looking to their leaders. And, you know, we're looking around the world at world leaders in a way that we really don't usually, I think, um, you know, Charlotte's already mentioned New Zealand, you know, we're looking at, at good leaders and bad leaders. And it's something that Shakespeare is constantly exploring in his plays, um, particularly in the history plays, but not exclusively, you know, what does make a good leader? Why do people follow these people? And, you know, I suppose in a rather naive way, I thought, well, that's quite historical, you know, back in the day, that's the way that they looked at, at, at their leaders. Mm. But but we are having to do it too. And, and we are holding them to account, looking at their kind of moral compass, if you like, and 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 also as you say, you know, to what extent they are leading us effectively, to what extent they're abusing their power. Um, Johnson, Trump, um, you know, we're looking at Macron, we're looking at what's going on in Brazil, we're looking all over the place and seeing seeing really examining, scrutinizing our leaders in a way that perhaps we haven't done for a very long time. Yeah, I, th I think it's made them feel a lot closer, hasn't it, in a way, you know, and it's the, uh, and, and I guess specifically because it, you know, it, it, it feels so direct in terms of life and term, life and death issues. And I, I think we've probably all felt that today, even with the, you know, the latest discussions about the AstraZeneca jab and you know are we all are we being told the whole truth about that you know which comes back to that issue about managing information and um are we convinced that the uh, advice is right i don't want to put anyone off from taking a jab because like the rest of us i'm sure you know i think that's really important but nevertheless it makes you um uh question these uh, things about leadership in a in a, in a way that you feel a, such an immediate personal uh, connection to every decision that's made at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Charlotte, Kieran, would you like to come in? Um, well, yeah. Oh, Charlotte, do you want to go first? Yeah, you can go first. You sure? Yeah, you go ahead. Okay. Um, I just uh, just a few quick things. Um, first, I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned the preparing ourselves spiritually for death because this was something that was obviously really important to people. Um, it still is to a lot of people, but it was it's not as prevalent or, or ubiquitous. This is a word that we've used a lot um, as, now as, as it was back then. And one of the terrifying things about bubonic plague was how quickly it killed people. And because of how many people were dying, um, often people didn't have time to receive lost rites and things like that. And people were being buried in mass graves. And so it was this sort of like double death of physical and and spiritual death 
uh, the Bishop of Leicester during 1348 um, um, put out a proclamation basically that people were to be um, absolved as, as normal on their deathbed except for debtors. Um, which I think is just really, really horrific as a way to mitigate how many people who they were allowed to go to. Um, another thing, you bring up James I, um, and I'm not sure ex- how relevant this is, but I have to mention it, but that James I was wildly superstitious. Um, he was terrified of witches um, and the the the, ho- the witch trials and the persecution of women un- under and and of pagan uh, folklore and stuff was never as bad as it was in James the First. He he wrote an entire book on witchcraft and what was going on. He also once got lost in a storm in in his ship and blamed it on witches, which led to a, a trial that occurred in the palace where he personally inspected three women that he then executed, blaming the the storm on them and. He He's also the only English monarch to ever execute a male member of the aristocracy for witchcraft, whose bones, I can't remember his name, and I don't want to go rummaging through my history books, but I remember the tidbit that he then had the bones of this individual cut up and sent to different abbeys and and um, um, abbeys and churches across the country. It's relics of, like, we have a bone of a male aristocrat witch. Like, this is what we're doing to bring them down. So, yeah, James I is a bit of a maniac, and I think that it doesn't get played up enough. People often focus on, like, Elizabeth and Mary burning Protestants and Catholics, but James thought witches were coming to get him, and that's way worse. Um, and on the, the sort of this spiritual um, focus, something else that happened through these epidemics was the kind of near collapse of church rule um, because obviously priests and monks and other members of the clergy both lay and uh, you know professionally trained members of the clergy were dying of of the plague almost as much as everybody else the control the church had was becoming more limited and also because they had no power to stop it and people thought that they should and so there were a lot of um, you know not sanctioned preachers on street corners talking about you know how it was the end times or that the plague was being sent by god which lent the uh the idea that if you survived the plague it meant that god didn't think you were a sinner regardless of the life you'd lived before um and so there were lots of acts that were put forward like the conventicle act which gave um the church and the government power to restrict um capture and move around uh religious dissidents which ended up with a lot of people dying uh for example a group of quakers were rounded up in the 1650s uh during the epidemic that was um occurring then and over a hundred of them died both in newgate jail and then about 30 of them died on a ship um, when they were put on a ship to be transported but then the ship couldn't move because of the plague and so they were on the ship for seven months um, and they yeah they died of the plague on the ship uh, i think that very much leads into you, you what you're talking about uh, with political and uh 
forces of of power and and how they change the rules or they there's the the twofold sorry i'm getting mixed up in my words but the twofold of people using this as a chance to gain more power and then people panicking that the systems are collapsing due to the crisis and like rambling around trying to find a way to hold on to the power that's slipping through their fingers and again like what we've discussed nothing has seemed to have changed really Charlotte, do you want to comment at all? I just can't quickly. I'll try not to go on a bit of political rant, but you never know with me. I we'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> um, the big thing in Measure for Measure, I don't know the play hugely well, but the big thing that always struck me is the Duke seems like a bit of a just a knob in general. Like, he goes away and leaves this corrupt person who, let's face it, it's it's clear within two minutes that he's corrupt and probably the last person you should have left in charge. And then he's like, I will now solve this problem. Sure, the problem you created, well done. Um, I guess you get brownie points for doing that and then forcing a woman to marry you, whatever. Um, but he just feels like he's trying to pass the buck. He's continually trying to be like, none of this is my fault. It was this guy, you know, the one I left in power, um, which is a big thing that's happening now. Obviously, we see it in every government um, that is not handling the crisis well, isn't handling it well because they're refusing to take any responsibility that they are the problem. And this started quite early on in the pandemic. I mean, if you look at initial reports, it was being called like the China virus that then feeds into the really anti um, uh, Asian sentiment that is is bleeding into society. It's always been there. Um, and it's one of the forms of racism that's really overlooked massively. Um, obviously, in, in, in America, there was those um, Chinese massage therapists or uh, who, who, who was killed by that young young boy eight of them and and everyone was like oh i think the police officer in charge said oh yeah that guy had a had a really bad day and i'm like mm, i'm sure he didn't have as bad a day as the people he shot but sure um it was easy to blame china as well because governments wanted an excuse to to try and take their power down a bit um and then it just feeds into this whole racist sentiment that also plays very well for for certain voters and certain systems so what you see in measure for measure of people just continually being like this isn't really my fault this is because of somebody else um is just something that's still happening today and uh, you get the, the image i i always get the idea that shakespeare just got really annoyed at it got really annoyed at people who would continually not take responsibility for the stuff that they did. Um, you see it in Macbeth. Uh, you know, Macbeth spends about most of the play feeling guilty, but also being like, oh, what a terrible predicament I've suddenly found myself in, as if he didn't have any hand in anything that had happened or anything that is happening to him or, you know, the children that he had murdered or that kind of thing um and and yeah just it just seems like a lot of Shakespeare's plays people in power never want to take responsibility and always think they're the victims and we we see Claudio but it it, it, it makes sense there would have been other people that actually did get executed for pointless crimes that we didn't see because they're not main parts in the play but I mean Andrew probably had loads of people killed um and you don't see the Duke really apologizing 
for that or the problems that he himself caused um and i just think it's quite quite a nice parallel to what we still have you know governments asking why is poverty so bad poverty so bad because you made it bad you can't complain about the system if you are the system you can just change it stop doing the bad things you're doing and and the problems will sort itself out but yeah anyway i'm, I'm gonna stop talking about politics now <laughs> Well, I, Sorry, think, I, I, think, I think it's absolutely fine because, I mean, it's, it's clearly absolutely relevant and that, that, that tension between the personal and the political is something that I think has figured in, in what's been said about all four plays tonight, but also in, uh, you know, the parts of the conversation where we've talked more about our experience of um, the COVID-19 now. Um, Okay, um, now I'm, I think probably um, we've explored all we've got time to do because we've gone on longer than we intended to at the beginning. And I'll just say to the audience that I, I hope uh, that uh, you didn't switch off at the point when Kieran said, um, I'll answer your question, John, just by saying the plague's ubiquitous because uh, I, I hope some of the stuff we've said kind of beyond that has kind of elaborated on that answer. But I, I think it's come out as a as a kind of underpinning, actually, that there's I think what we've shared has, has suggested that the plague is there in Shakespeare um, a lot more than it might appear to be. Uh, and some of that would have been in the shared knowledge that Shakespeare as playwright and the performers and the audience had about its ubiquitousness. Um, so some of that probably doesn't need to be stated. Um, but I, there was also the telling point that somebody made about, you know, the question is not if a pandemic is going to come, but when it's going to come. And um, the need for societies to get better at planning for pandemics and dealing with them and, and clearly with that if that is something that we've learned um, from this experience as, as a world uh, it's probably a really important lesson uh, and I, I mean I, I think I think also what's come across for me has been that point about um, if we're looking for the positives it is about um, taking the, those spaces to find what in life is really important and to make sure that we learn from finding out what we individually and as a society really think that is. And that's what we mustn't lose sight of as, as hopefully we continue to come out of um, this pandemic. So I, st I started by saying, um, Perhaps this should be called, um, you know, the bard pursued by the plague. Um, perhaps what we've actually talked about a bit is the bard sort of turning around and facing the plague and a, a recognition that for a mature society, that's something we need to do. And that Shakespeare clearly did in many ways in his plays. So uh, I'm going to suggest we wind it up there. And I'd just like to finish by thanking Charlotte Kieran and Sarah for a conversation that I've both enjoyed but found in 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 moments moving as well when we've talked about you know some of the really deep 
effects that coronavirus has had on our own lives and other people's. Uh, and I hope uh, that you've found it interesting. Exit Pursued by a Bard is a Canterbury Shakespeare Festival podcast. You can find out more about the festival at www.canterburyshakespeare.co.uk. Stay up to date with what we're doing by liking us on Facebook or following us on Instagram at Canterbury Shakespeare. If you like what you see and want to support us in bringing great outdoor theatre to Kent, you can donate to the festival through our GoFundMe page. More information can be found on our website. Thou tottering, tickle-brained vassal!